0: You're listening to another message from Generation City Church. Well, it's my joy to continue this morning on Hebrews 4.12. We're focusing on the Word of God and it's a journey for me as well as for you. I have never preached on that subject as I am And each time I start a new message, I've got a blank sheet. So it's not that I've got all the information there. I've got to dig it, pray it. And you know, God is always faithful. It's one of the pivotal scriptures in the Bible. It shares with us the tremendous power that God has placed within His Word... And this morning, we're going somewhat deeper. And this morning, the two-edged sword is not going to be used on temptation and the devil, but it's going to be used on ourselves. So, Pastor Marty, there could be a little bit of pain here, but that pain will increase in future messages. For, for the Word of God is wonderful, it ministers to our needs. It's, I'm just so enthralled with the beauty and the grandeur of the Word of God. So if you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, I'm sure that you'll almost, if you don't, you probably do know that verse off by heart already. It's one of the great verses of the Bible. For the word of God is living, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We have looked at God's word as living, as a seed, as living within us and constantly day and night working through our lives. We've considered the Word of God as active and powerful, and so it is. And last session we looked at God's Word as sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we're extending the The sharpness of the two-edged sword now to the division of soul and spirit. The two-edged sword we saw last time was uh, a two-mouthed sword. uh, And it wielded the greatest spiritual power there is. When we take hold of God's word, when we take hold of a rhema, when we take hold of a promise, uh, and we speak it uh, with the authority and in the name of God, we we have the two-edged sword. God has spoken it. We take and we speak it. It's the two-edged sword, the power of the two-edged sword. And I finished up last time talking about Rema, we have the Logos, which is the entire Word of God. The Logos, Christ, of course, was referred to by John in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. He represented the entire revelation of God. All the rituals, the sacrifices, the prophetic words, all that the Old Testament brought, the human race, Jesus embodied that as the Logos of God. And then we have the word Rema, which refers to a specific passage of Scripture that the Spirit of God brands upon your spirit... Enlightens and, and the rema takes place within our spirit, not within our mind, within our mind, we can read the entire Word of God, we can know the stories, but when we get a ma, that word comes into our spirit. It has power when it comes forth from our spirit, it has the power of God's spirit. And this is where we need to now focus on where God's two-edged sword, the word of God, can separate soul and spirit. Now, this is important. Often we kind of don't pay too much attention to it, but ultimately our victory, the power of our Christian life, our relationship with God, communion with God, All has to do with an understanding of soul and spirit, separating soul from spirit. And so this morning we're going to look at God's word piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Now I've got more notes that I need, and I do that purposely. And uh, we're going to look at how this takes place. And interestingly, when we look at Hebrews 4, we find uh, that uh, before we have that wonderful verse that we're focusing on in verse 2, we read, "...but the word which they heard did not profit them not being mixed with faith in those that heard." And so we're told here that God's word, unless it's mixed with faith, does not work. You know, we're spoiled with all the uh, gadgets we have in the kitchen and the blenders and the mix masters. But if you go back to the 50s, and a few of you might remember, you had the wooden ladle, the wooden spoon and you'd mix in the flour, the egg, and whatever else you want, and you mixed and you mixed and you mixed until the process produced what you wanted to put in the oven. And it worked. And God's Word will not work unless we mix it with faith. We've got to take God's Word, then we've got to release faith from our spirit, And we've got to mix and mix. It may not happen within a minute. Some of you old ladies, I'm sorry, some of you mature. (laughs) Well, I'm going to be in trouble here. Uh, Some of you senior ladies, okay, may have spent an hour mixing. And you know, sometimes we take a verse and we think, God, you're going to do it straight away. Well, sometimes God may, but we've got to mix. We've got to mix Faith into the Word to make it work, and the writer helps us here by saying God's Word separates soul from spirit. The rema word of God that He gives us comes into our spirit. Now the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 said, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Listen to this. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be presented blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul here clearly divides our human being into three body soul and spirit and if you read what paul exhorts before he shares that truth you'll find there's all sorts of exhortations we don't have time to look at this morning that relate to body soul and spirit now we are fearfully and wonderfully made And our body has five senses. Sometimes we talk about a sixth sense, but normally it's the five senses. And I'm so glad that God has blessed us with the five senses that we have. You know, the sense of sight, the ability to see each other, to see nature, the ability to, be, to see the wonderful world that God has made. What a blessing that is to life. The sense of hearing with music and voices that we love. And so much of our life is blessed by hearing. The sense of taste. I don't need to say too much about that. Pastor uh, Joel kind of tells us a lot about the sense of taste and food. (laughs) But how wonderful that is. Can you imagine eating food without taste? It would be a drudgery. There'd be no joy. God knew how to make us. God made us with these wonderful senses and the sense of smell, the wonderful aromas of nature, the beautiful smell of perfumes, the wonderful smells of cooking food and fresh bread. How blessed we are in this human body to appreciate the wonder of God's word and then the sense of touch. How beautiful that is. How many of you remember the first time you held hands with your beloved? Right, good, good. So I can see some wives kind of uh, nudging there. No, I didn't. I didn't see that at all. No. But the wonder of that, the simplicity of it, but yet the wonder of it, that touch, the wonder of touching a grandchild, On the face and just adoring its beauty and its love. They're the senses that God has made us with. And sometimes they refer to the sixth sense, which is not one of the senses of the body. It goes deeper into the soul, uh, into the spirit realm where you can, with intuition, you know, sense things that are not seen. It really doesn't belong to the five senses of our body. And so we have a body... And we have a soul, and the soul has three great uh, faculties. It has the faculty of mind, our intelligence, our thinking power, the ability to uh, you know, think, what a wonderful thing that is. We can't touch it, but we experience it. Then our soul has the wonder of emotion. It's stirred within our soul, expressed through our body, the wonder of emotion. And then it has the wonder and the power of will, where we can make decisions, we can will to do good, will a wonderful faculty of the soul. And Paul says, "We, mind, may your mind, my emotion, and, I'm sorry, may your uh, body, uh, soul, and spirit be blameless. And then we have the spirit and I, I used to kind of want to compartmentalize the spirit into maybe three functions. But as I look at God's word, it's difficult to do that because our spirits are so wonderful and so great and so grand. Within our spirit, we have the ability of communion with God. How wonderful that is and we experienced it this morning. In our spirit, we have conscience, that sense of right and wrong, independent of uh, what we've learned, but what God has placed within us. Within our spirit, we have faith. Faith is within the spirit. Within our mind, we can express uh, positive thoughts, but it's within our spirit that faith resides. And this is why it's so important for God through His Word as we read it and study it to separate soul from spirit. For most of God's communication and work within our lives is within our spirit. And then within our spirit we have a freedom. We have a heart. I think a lot of the references in the Bible to heart refer to the spirit Within our spirit, we have a, 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 a love, a, a, you know, agape love the love of God and the, the love of a mother uh, to a child is is within the spirit. For that child was part of her and part of her spirit. And Paul writes, "May the God of peace, the God of harmony, tranquility, oneness, set you apart, sanctify you completely." that your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. What a wonderful thing God wants to do as he brings harmony through his word to our entire being. (coughs) I want to give you some examples from scripture where the soul is separated from the spirit. Now when I was studying English Literature at university we looked at quite a few of the modern uh, authors and as we looked at a book at that tertiary level study, you looked beyond the storyline. You looked at the symbolism. You looked at the networking of the things that happened and the wider truth that the author was trying to present. And where a brilliant author was able to do that well through the pen, God through human life and human history recorded in his word has submerged some of the most wonderful truths that we have in the word of God. Paul talks about the the children of Israel going through the Red Sea. And he talks about that as a type of water baptism. And so there's a lot in Scripture, a lot of stories that seem to be unrelated, but the Holy Spirit has left room in those stories to expound some of the great truths of God. And the first one I want to look at is, I want to look at the biblical example where God shows us a dividing of soul from spirit I want to look at Solomon's determination of a baby's rightful mother. You know, we have that wonderful story of Solomon. We have that dream every one of us want. Where God came to Solomon in a dream and said, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Okay, I haven't had that dream, but we can, in God's presence, you know, seek His face and uh, seek God's blessing upon our lives. And in that dream, Solomon said, "I want wisdom. I want an ability to judge righteously. Your people, God's people, and God was pleased. God's always pleased when we ask for something to bless others, because through asking something to bless others, God will." Bless us. And God said to Solomon, Solomon, because you've asked this, I'm going to give you wisdom. You're going to be the wisest man that ever lived. But in addition, because you didn't ask for wealth and riches and other material things and a destruction of your enemies, I'm going to give you that also. You didn't have to ask me for that. But you asked me for what was precious to my heart. And when he woke out of that dream, we have that fascinating story of these two women of ill repute. They come, they're brought before Solomon. and, and, And this is the test that Solomon has, the first test after that dream. God, I want judgment and wisdom and the ability to judge. And these ladies came and the first one the, the first lady, the, 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 the problem was that uh, one of the ladies, we're not told their names, one of the ladies gave birth to a child. And then a second lady that lived in that same house, that same premise, three days later gave birth to a child. And then during the night, one of those babies died. And the baby the, 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 the lady's baby who died went during the night and swapped the baby over. And they came before Solomon, both saying that the child, the baby that's alive is theirs. And uh, Solomon has the two ladies there saying, No, the child's mine, the living child. No, the living child's Mine. Mine. And Solomon says, give me a sword. Give me a sword. And they brought Solomon a sword. And Solomon said, I'm going to cut that baby in half. I'm going to give each one that claims the baby is theirs half the child. And that should satisfy you. Satisfy the situation. And, uh, you know, in that situation we have... We, we, we have the emotions deep emotions we have the spirit of the women involved in this situation and the, the the woman that whose child was alive and it was rightfully hers said no don't do that i would rather my baby stay alive and looked after another than have that baby that's akin to me in spirit be killed and we both receive half. The other lady whose child had died and was trying to take hold usurp this other child said, Go ahead and do it. Already with her soul, with her mind, she had connived that uh, I'm going to trick, I'm going to get this baby that's not mine. And and, and when Solomon said, I'll cut the baby in two, all right, we'll do that. In her mind, it was fair. It was a way that uh, she would save face and neither of them would have the baby that was alive. Solomon becomes known worldwide For that decision that he made with the power of the sword. Tremendous wisdom there. And what did Solomon do? Solomon used the sword to separate soul from spirit. He separated the woman who, whose child had died, the woman who was acting incorrectly, who was acting with soul. She showed her colors. She showed who she was. And the woman whose spirit was bound to that baby that was hers said, no, even if I don't care for that baby, I want it to live. And he separated soul from spirit. And you know, sometimes it's painful when God has to separate within our life and within our experience that, that which belongs to soul to that which belongs to spirit. And it was the sword. And even though that story, I had no knowledge that one day uh, the writer of Hebrews would talk about a two-edged sword. And talk about a sword that would pierce asunder, divide soul and spirit. Yet the power of the Holy Spirit in collecting the revelation that he wanted to leave us was such. That he gave us there a type of the sword that can separate soul from Spirit. The true mother responded from heart, from spirit. She wanted the child to live, even if it was in another mother's arms. The sword revealed the difference between soul and spirit. Solomon, uh, as you read his writings, and and later on, if, you know, a master minister again. Some of the greatest insights. That we have in God's word concerning our spirit and soul are found in the writings of Solomon. If you read the book of Proverbs, its understanding of spirit is absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. And so we have there an instance or an example of the separation of soul soul. And spirit. The second example I want to give you from Scripture is Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. You know, God came, the angel of the Lord came to Abraham, promised that he would be a great nation when his wife was childless. And the wonderful story of Abraham as we follow uh, the, the, the pathway that uh, God had for him was such, uh, uh, Genesis 12:2 "I will make you a great nation." He was 75 years old. His wife Sarah, was childless. Uh, his journey at faith at that point had begun, and he relied. At the beginning in that wonderful journey of faith on the cleverness of his mind in trying to bring about God's promises. God said, I'll make you a great nation. And then we find that he goes into the land of Egypt because of famine. And Sarah was a beautiful woman. And Pharaoh was attracted to her and taken into a home. And then God got involved and Abraham said, she's my sister. There, There was an element of truth in that. But rather than trust in God, he used the cleverness of his mind to protect his person. Even though God promised that through him, he would bless the world. And then later on, the same happened with Abimelech. And uh, Abimelech saw how beautiful Sarah was and, and, uh, and wanted her in his household. And God began to move in judgment. And he questioned Abraham. And a second time, Abraham said, she is my sister rather than trust God. And we know the story Uh, how the angel appeared and and Abraham and Sarah wondered at at the promise of God. And and even when they had those promises, then Sarah said, Abraham, look, I'm childless. Go to Hagar. Take her as your wife. She might be able to bear you a child and and what God has promised might come through through Hagar. And he did that once again. He did not act from his spirit on the word that God had imparted to him, but he used his mind and the planning of his mind. And, of course, he married Hagar and and Ishmael was born. And what a mess it was. And it continues this day. And there you have Abraham. And then finally... As God takes him through his walk of faith, he comes to the point where Sarah becomes Sarah, Sarah, Sarai rather becomes Sarah, and Abram becomes Abraham, and the H, as many of you would know, represents a window of blessing. And so God added a H. You know, God adds a H to us when we come into the kingdom. God wants us to be a window of blessing to the world, to the community, to the church in which we live. And then finally, God's promise comes to pass. And God says, Abraham, I want you to take your son and I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham obeys and takes takes Isaac And Isaac, not knowing what's going on, there's no animal who's the sacrifice going to be. And all Abraham could say is, God will provide. And Abraham takes him to Mount Moriah. And on Mount Moriah, he makes the burnt burnt altar. And he ties his son to that. And here we have Abraham is not thinking with his mind. Abraham is not thinking with his soul. Abraham is disregarding all that his mind is saying. Abraham, if you kill him, there's no future. Abraham, you love this child with all your heart, child of your old age. If he goes, there'll be nothing left. Abraham, you have a will, you have a choice. Abraham's soul would have been rising at that moment. But God knew that faith now was in spirit, that faith now had lodged into his spirit. And he took the sword, the dagger, the knife, that knife, and he was ready now to slay his son. This was not soul, this was not mind, emotion, or will. This was spirit, this was absolute trust in God and as he did, the angel stopped him. You see, it was the sword. We have another picture here where the sword, the, the, the dagger, the sharp edge, was able to separate within Abraham soul from spirit. And once God saw that the promise was within his spirit, Abraham became the father of faith. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. Abraham was the uh, man of greatest faith that ever lived. And the angel told him to stop and God's provision was there. And, uh, and you know, Paul kind of tells us a bit more of what went on in Abraham's uh, mind in Romans 4 as we You know, looked at the story in verse 17. He talks about Abraham, whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls those things who did not exist as though they do. Even if he killed his son, that would not stop God's promises. In his mind, the promise of God was so firm and so great that Abraham's spirit looked beyond and though he might have been dead and yet he believed he would be alive. And verse 18, who contrary to hope, in hope believed. What hope was there once you slay your son? Who contrary to hope, believed in hope, verse 19, and not being weak in faith. He did not consider his own body already dead and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. The knife, the two-edged sword, Raised, ready to strike. Separated and showed God that faith indeed now was resident within the spirit of Abraham. God's word now had been mixed with faith. Spirit prevailed. Abraham became the father of faith. That's the second story. The third instance I want to look at is a story that, have I got time? It's a story that I I marvel at. It's the story of Samson's yielding to Delilah. You know, if any of us ever doubt that God can use us, even though we've made mistakes, need to read the story of Samson. The wonderful greatness and grace and the ability of God in a person's life it is amazing. And as I've read, there's only four chapters. But in those four chapters, you know, there's just so much concerning a Samson. And, you know, Samson was born. He was one of the three men whose birth was announced by an angel. The first one was Isaac, and we just looked at Abraham. The second was Samson. The third was John the Baptist. And so he was unique in the sense that God had a purpose for him that was absolutely amazing. And he became the strongest man that ever lived. And the angel of the Lord came to to, to his mother, and told her that she would give birth to a son, and, and she had to place him under the, the Nazarite vow, the Nazarite rite. She was not allowed to, uh, to, to drink wine or eat anything of the vine or eat anything unclean because within her would be a child that would be a Nazarite from birth. Now, the Nazarite vow or commitment or covenant was, first of all, you were not allowed to to drink wine or to have anything to do with grapes. Nothing at all. The second part of it was that uh, you were not to touch anything unclean, anything that's dead or died, human or animal. The third part of it was that you were not to shave your head, not to shave your head. They were the three main features of the Nazarite separation or commitment. Now, why God wanted these things, I'm not quite sure, but it really doesn't matter. But when Samson was born, he was born. And yet Samson... The Bible's just so candid. This is, you know, where, where people think maybe, you know, the Bible's been polished and only, you know, nice things are. But no, when you look at the detail concerning, Sam, he was a man that had a real problem. You know, he had a problem. He flouted the Nazarite commitment upon his life. And very early on when he saw, uh, he saw that lady, the Timonite uh, lady uh, that, that he was attracted to and he wanted her to be his wife and he got his parents down to negotiate a deal. She was a Philistine. And, uh, and they said, can't you find someone from your own people? And they had to go through the vineyard. He was already doing what he shouldn't do. And then somehow God was to change this situation and use it, that he could judge the Philistines because Samson was a judge. The Philistines were in control of Israel. They had supremacy. Israel was obedient to the Philistines. And and Samson was to bring some deliverance to the Jews. And then we find later he comes. We still on, are we? Did I do something? We'll fix it. Everyone hear me? All right. Okay. Uh, and then, later, uh, and then, uh, uh, as Samson leaves the negotiation, he, he sees a lion, and you know the story. The lion attacks him, jumps or, uh, on him, and and he just tears the lion to pieces. The, the spirit of God came mightily upon him, and then uh, later on, he comes because of the Timonite. He wants to marry her. He comes and he digresses. And he goes to see the carcass of the lion, and he finds that uh, the carcass of the lion is swarming with bees, swarming with bees, and uh, there was honey, there was honey, uh, in the uh, the carcass of the lion. And he put his hand, and he touched, he got the honey, and began to eat it, and took some. To he, he was not to touch a dead. He was he, he was he was. He was flouting he was playing with the call of God upon his life and sometimes God seemed to overlook and you know as the story goes on we have some of the mighty acts that he was involved in Uh, you know where with the jawbone of an ass and once again it says An ass, uh, the the word used, and I I didn't have time to kind of look into it fully, fresh, the fresh jawbone of an ass, but it was still dead. And this was not part of the Nazarite uh, call upon his life. And and as we look at the things, and then as the story goes on very quickly, uh, he goes down to Gaza and he goes into a harlot's home. And the Philistines recognize he's there and they lock the city. And during the night, uh, uh, he gets up at midnight and he rips the doors from uh, and the posts and he carries those heavy doors up the hill. I, I don't think that was done with anointing. I think that was done with the sheer power that this man had, that once it was What word would I use once I was going to, you know, once the Spirit of God came, this man, you know, he wasn't some little man. He, he was strong even to cope with the anointing of God that came upon his life. As I read that story and I think, Samson, how can you be so stupid? How can you do these things? How can you play with things that you shouldn't play with? And, and then we come to chapter 16 and... He sees Delilah and he, he, he falls in love with Delilah. And uh, Delilah, uh, the Philistines come and uh, they say, we'll give you the, the, the 11,000 pieces of silver each. We'll give you if you can tell us the secret of Samson's strength. And, and, and then she asked him. He was stupid enough to play and say, first of all, uh, five bow strings tie me with those and my strength will go and she did and the philistines came and he snapped them and then he said two new ropes tie me and then you'll find my strength's gone and then she goes again and says samson you don't love me you you're tricking you're playing with me and then samson says take the seven locks of my hair weave them onto a weave and weave them well and you'll find that my strength score now is is on dangerous ground you know he's virtually broken the nazarite vow is dangerous ground and then uh, they come and he and then finally he had no self-control delilah Nagged him so much that the Bible said it vexed his soul. It vexed his soul. He just had enough. He couldn't take any more. And he said, I'll tell you. And he opened his heart and he said, I'm a Nazarite from birth. My hair, my head's never been shaven. Once it is, I've lost my strength. And she does it. He was a fool. She does it. The Philistines come. They capture him. There's no strength. They take out his eyes. He was already blind. He was already spiritually blind. But what I want to just paint from this picture is that he'd never had a haircut. Can you imagine the bulk and the length of his hair? So they would have, and it wasn't uncommon, they would have taken a sword probably just to cut the main bulk off and then maybe some kind of razor to fully. But it was the sword here that revealed to Samson the difference between soul and spirit. He recognized that within his spirit, God's spirit dwelt, he had gone too far. He had broken his vow. God had departed. There was no strength left. And he was captured. He was blinded. He was uh, uh, placed uh, in a situation where he was just in, in the prison. He was grinding. And uh, that slowly his hair just quickly grew back. And, and uh, then they were having a feast to the God of Dagon. And they said, let's bring Solomon out and let's let's have a bit of fun and sport. And they brought him out and he asked the boy to just put his hands around the two posts that held the temple together. And the Spirit of God came back. And in that one incident, as he broke, as he broke those columns, more more people died in judgment than in his entire life. But what what I want to show you from that story is that the power of God resides within our spirit. And uh, it was uh, a Zerubbabel that gave us the wonderful words, Uh, Zechariah 4.16. He said, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Says the Lord. And church, I want to tell you this morning that it's only God's word that can separate soul from spirit. And I want to tell you it's never by might, it's never by any power, or any ability that we might have. And this is why so often so many things go wrong. But God's word says, It is by my spirit. Seth the Lord, it's the Spirit of God within us. God dwells within. All the power we'll ever need is within. The problem is that we mix soul with spirit. And it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And the one of the wonderful works of God's word is that as you read it, as you read its wonderful stories, its wonderful messages. It's showing you what soul and it's showing you what spirit. For our focus must always be on spirit. Samson was the strongest man, but that was not enough if God's spirit was not working through his spirit. And just in closing... Galatians 5.16, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Verse 25, if, if, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. To get us there, God will take us through the pain of the two-edged sword, which is the word of God, to cut deep within us, separating soul. And spirit. And Pastor Marty, I'm glad to say it's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by God's spirit. Pastor Margo, it's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by God's spirit. Pastor Joel, it's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by my spirit. Church, it's not by might. It's not by power. Take the word. Use the word. Let the word separate soul from spirit. Work from your spirit. Amen.